I love that effect. It's so final. Gets me in the mood. Welcome to Hangover Lounge and season one of Screenplay Resurrection, and thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the final episode of the season, in this case, our very own Murdering Michael Malloy, where the filmmaking team, that would be myself, David Zellerford, and Raymond DeFelita, discuss the project while we revisit the past and the material adapted for this format. Hangover Lounge was created as a digital nonfiction production company, and over the years, Hangover Lounge has come to represent a respite from mine and my producing and creative partner's day jobs. Mine as a producer of advertising and branded content, and writer and director Raymond DeFelita's day job as a narrative feature filmmaker. Hangover Lounge is a place where we're able to reflect on business and the industry where we're not waiting for anyone to award a job or greenlight a project. And as our interests have evolved over the time that we've been working together, well, podcasting turned out to be another extension of Hangover Lounge and a destination for the kind of material and subjects that inspires and recharges us, and hopefully you too. And we're really glad that you've joined us on our journey. Raymond? I was reflecting on murdering Michael Malloy and how it began, uh, and the whole disaster uh, uh, goes back to 1997, I think. West 4th Street is, is the worst street in Greenwich Village. It, it has, it's filled with head shops and lousy bars. One of them I lived over was called Down the Hatch. Uh, and and that, that's where I was living at the time. I just made my first movie, Cafe Society. Jones Street's much nicer. Uh, a new bar had opened up. And as is my want, I went in for a, an afternoon cocktail to check it out. And the bartender was this very nice fellow who claimed to be an NYU student, although he looked a little old for that. Uh, but his name was David Zellerford. And we became pals. And eventually he got around to, you know, being truthful about why he was giving me all that scotch. He'd written a script. It was called Murdering Michael Malloy. It was a play, actually, that, that he first had written. And it was about this extraordinary tale of Michael Malloy, the man who could not, uh, who would not die, no matter how they tried to murder him in all these different gruesome ways. I had never heard that story, and it sounded to me like New York City folklore, but in fact, it's true. So I read it. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was a, a great idea for a dark comedy, but it also had something beyond the comedic to it. I thought there was something weird and chilling and philosophical, really, about you know about life and how we feed off of each other and how we need uh, things from each other, sometimes in a very dark way. Uh, and I saw poetry in it, too. And I also saw, which was very important to me at the time, a way to make a film that was highly non-commercial. Uh, that, was, that was my thing. I said I'd love to do a pass on the script. Well, I was actually delighted because you had Cafe Society in the theaters that you invited me to, and I was so impressed with it being a period piece and you know a wonderful piece of filmmaking that I jumped at the chance to have you take interest in, in, in the screenplay. But let's also point out that this is completely pre-internet. Since then, we've read about it in a number of publications that have recapped it as either the durable Mike Malloy or the man who wouldn't be killed. The late 90s, when we first were talking about it, nobody had really heard of the story. It's, it's important that you mention that I had made a period piece. Uh, Cafe Society was set in the 50s. Actually, I really hadn't made anything that wasn't a period piece. AFI short Bronx Cheers was set in the 40s in New York. Uh, Cafe Society it was set in the 50s and one of the things I thought was strange at the time was whenever people heard you wanted to do a period piece they say you can't it's too expensive but I've actually 
found that period can be done relatively cheaply. It depends on how, how big the scope is of what you're doing. And if you're doing people sitting in rooms and not doing wars and battles, uh, it's not a lot more expensive to do than anything else. And if you have a taste for period, if, you, if you're sympathetic to it, you can tell what's really important to emphasize and what you can skip over a little bit. You never want to get into any anachronisms because that'll ruin the illusion. But you can kind of pick and choose what you want to uh, emphasize. And I was very excited by the idea that this is a movie that we could do for a price. It was always in the one to two million dollar range. And it would look rich and it would be, you know, it would be an exciting period to evoke. So that was another part of the big draw for me. I love New York. I love New York history. I love the idea of doing the down and outside of the 1920s and early 30s, which mostly you see uh, portrayed as kind of exotic and kind of flamboyant. And this is anything but exotic and flamboyant. This is the dirtiest, lowest bar in a bad neighborhood in the Bronx. That was how we started things out. And I, I was optimistic and still am optimistic that you can make this movie for a real price. I was thinking about this. I don't remember exactly how I met Willem Dafoe, but uh, he, he, he read it pretty quickly and he, he really liked it. And we thought, you know, he'd be a great Marino. He wanted to do it. Uh, obviously, I had admired him for a long time before that. And, uh, and he's really, he, he's an actor's actor. Getting an actor and an actor who can be responsible for financing your piece for their name, it's, it's really, the, that's the name of the game, because now you can start to have a package, and you can say, I have this famous actor involved. Now, you can start to go out for financing with that one actor, but if you have one actor, you usually can attract a second. And what we thought was, well, we have Marino, now let's go after a Malloy. I believe the first person we sent it to for Malloy was Terrence Stamp. He was the star of The Collector, based on the, the John Fowles novel. He was he was uh, General Zod's Superman, don't forget that. He was in my favorite, one of my favorite Soderbergh films, The Limey, uh, which is magnificent. And, and Terrence Stamp said, yeah, I love it, let, let, you know, let's do it. So we, we had attachments. Now Terrence, I haven't seen him in years, but meeting him was really one of the special uh, experiences in my, in, in my showbiz life, because you simply haven't met anyone like Terrence Stamp. Uh, he, 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 he's an artist, obviously, he's, he's a brilliant guy. And when I met him, it was in New York, and I asked him where he lived. And his answer was, well, nowhere. And what he meant was he literally just had decided recently simply not to have a home. He had a suitcase. He said he was down to one suitcase. Uh, and I was so taken with this very kind of Zen thing of his, you know, just no address, no nothing. I don't want any attachments, and, and most importantly, I love your script. At one of our meetings, I asked him, this is a pretty, this isn't the kind of thing I would ask an actor now, but when I was 20 years younger, I said, so, so how, how do you want to play Malloy? An embarrassing question. And Terrence looked at me and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to give Malloy a, a very good performance, not some shitty John Hurt performance. Said, okay, so that that answered that it wasn't going to be a John, a shitty John Hurt performance. <laughs> he wasn't stuff. going to do it like John Hurt no, would do. It, it was not going to be a John Hurt performance. Uh, but but he, uh. he was he was attached, so we had our actors. Uh, and well, that's where our trouble sort of began, and where everything kind of unravels, as far as I can remember. But I'm not positive because 
dude, it's been 20 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. A shocking um, development. And, and what, what, what I re- fucking happened? You know, it's, it's strange. You can have two terrific actors who, you know, should be able to bring you the, the couple million dollars you need to do it. Uh, and you can have a script that you love. And then you go to buyers, uh, potential financiers, and they look at it and they go, hmm, a period piece, it's got a dark subject matter, it's grim, it ends on a grim note. Some people might find this funny, but a lot of people are going to find it distasteful. Why the hell would I give you any money to do this? It is clearly not going to be like a big box office movie. Well, let's back up, okay, because before any of this, Two Family House had sold at Sundance in 2000, in January. In July of 2000, which is 20 years ago almost to the date, there was a staged reading of, of this. Of Malloy, you're talking about, yeah. Of Malloy. The cast of that staged reading included Kevin Conway, who of course reprises the role here for us in the podcast. It was Gordon McDonald as Anthony Marino, uh, Michael Buscemi, uh, Vinnie Pastore, and our friend Matt Servito, who was in Two Family House, also played supporting roles. Did anything ever come of that reading? Good question. I don't recall anything about the reading other than we loved the way it sounded and we were more convinced than ever that we had a, a, a real project, but I don't recall who showed up. Well, Frank Frateroli showed up from William Morris, yeah. and he was uh, Defoe's representative at the time. Well, that kind of throws the time scheme into a different thing. Is that how we got Defoe? I, you know, here's the thing. I mean, if, the, if there's any example <laughs> to be learned from this, it's that, you know, in, in 20 years, the, the mess of putting together an independent film, uh, it, it just gets more confused later. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> you know what? I don't know how we could have possibly interested Willem without his agent saying this is an interesting project. So maybe that's how we got him. Uh, I, what I do remember is that shortly thereafter, we had a meeting with IFC, who appeared to be interested. And in order to get IFC excited, uh, we put together a portfolio of photographs. This is all pre-keynote, this, by this the way. This is literally making a Xerox. photocopies. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and pasting them into a big portfolio that you bought <laughs> at an art supply shop. You know, right, so, right. I remember yeah, this. And it, was, and it was a beautiful thing. We had pictures, spooky pictures of uh, dead bodies from Luke Sante's uh, fantastic book evidence uh, which are shots from the teens and 20s that, uh, from crime scenes we had Ouija photographs you know it was pretty grim stuff but it was very it was very artsy and you know look we were never selling this as a you're going to make a you know a zillion dollars on this kind of movie what we always were saying is we're going to make something that's going to be richly rewarding to viewers who seek it out and we hope prestigious in an awards movie uh, and IFC I think understood that the puzzle here is, is what the hell happened to the IFC part of it? I, it, it, it went away somehow. I remember months went by and it turned out that there was another project about this by Harvey Keitel and the Goat Singers. Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah, I, re- I remember finding out that, that, that Harvey Keitel had wanted to do this story, had his own version of it. We had no idea uh-huh. at that point and we thought, well, all right, that's... There goes our movie, potentially. I think the other thing that, that happened, and now again, my, I'm, my, the time frame's a little loose, but and I think this is a, an important thing to remember when you're putting together movies, is that sometimes world events just start to work against you. No one's going to buy a cop movie or a cop show right now in here in 2020. And I know that because I've heard it, because I'm trying to sell one. That's not happening. And... I, and I understand why not. It's just that's not the moment to, to be discussing this subject in a fictional way, uh, in any way, really, except as a realistic one. The event 
that was happening around that time that changed a lot and, and didn't help us in any way, of course, was 9-11. And in the aftermath of 9-11, this was not a movie that anyone was anxious to finance or make. It was grim. It was downbeat. It, it, was, it was everything that suddenly was not you know, going to excite any buyer. And, and I think that that's kind of where the first iteration of Murdering Michael Malloy as a movie that we thought we could get off the ground probably ended around that. Uh, the air went out of it. And this is another truth. When, it, when the air goes out of a project, it's when people have been hanging around waiting for it to start for too long and they start to lose interest. So world events sort of turned against it. I think our actors by then were saying, yeah, it's been a couple of years. These guys aren't really pulling this movie together and they sort of moved on too. Do you remember hearing that there was an issue because the only woman that we had in the cast was Betty Carlson who gets murdered immediately? Absolutely, yeah. Do you recall our solve to that rewriting a female character who posed in drag as Joseph Maglioni and had this kind of tempestuous love affair with Marina? We, do you recall I, I do. Now, again, time frame is, is a little iffy to me, but I do remember as we continued chopping the project, we began trying to adjust things to what we were hearing from the marketplace. And as you said, one of the problems was this is a, a, a movie that's with an all-male cast. So we said, okay, well, how can we change that? And the solution was let's make one of the characters, in this case, Tiny by Stone's henchman, a woman who dresses like a man. And I'm not exactly sure why that didn't take, but around that time, I was reading a, a fascinating book called Gay New York, which was a history of New York's gay world underground, really, from the late 19th century through the 1940s. Well, wait, there's another step here, because we had optioned the Billy Tipton story from Suits Me. Oh, God, now that I really forgot. Suits Me is a book that we optioned to create a film about the Billy Tipton story. Yeah, and was that part of this whole messy process? I guess it was. We should leave Billy Tipton out of this. It's, too, it's you know, it's, it's too much for me. I, it's, <laughs> we should leave ourselves out no, of this, honestly, Raymond. It's, like it's so depressing to realize how many wrong turns you take in trying to put a movie together. But the, but the positive part is we finally somehow, between optioning Billy Tipton and me reading this history of the underground gay New York, we came upon something that I thought was fascinating, which was the Harlem fairy ball dances. And what that was was for men who enjoyed being with men who dressed as women, they would dress up and they would go to these uh, elegant balls that were given in a ballroom in Harlem. They call them the fairy ball. And we thought, well, Marino is such a strange character. We know so little about him. So we needed to sort of uh, read some tea leaves and figure out what is making Marino tick. And what we knew about him uh, essentially was that he had syphilis, uh, which made him a little mad a little crazy. We know that the only woman he was ever married to, he murdered about five minutes after they were married if, to collect the insurance. Uh, and we began to think, was that part of his self-loathing uh, at the time? I mean, this was nothing that you could do in the open in 1932 or 33. Uh, and we thought, well, perhaps what we're really missing is something more personal about him. And we said, what if he was in love with Bastogne's henchman, who's a guy who dresses as movie stars of the day, and thus developed a character of a young gangster who dresses up as Carol Lombard, 
And we thought, all right, that's it's probably perverse enough. It's certainly not going to help us selling the movie, but it made it better. And I think that the, the thing that we were always driven by is how, how can we keep making this story cooler and more interesting and something that you hadn't seen before? I remember we liked the idea that we were digging into New York history more and more by by yeah. involving that part of the subculture and that the entire movie was really about right. subculture and hidden culture in, in New York in that time of the early Depression years. I think now would be a good time to talk about adapting the screenplay for a podcast and the process of that and why we chose Murdering Michael Malloy, given that we have, between the two of us, probably a dozen I was going to say about two, 200, uh, probably, unproduced <laughs> scripts. You're, well, you're much more prolific than I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm much more unproduced. First of all, there's like a 17-year gap. Uh, where the project becomes one of these, you know, gee, one day we really should try to make that movie again things. And this happens. We move on. I directed a series of other things. David, you have... You've made documentaries through Hangar Well, and then, and then you and I teamed up to make a couple of documentaries, which kind of led both of us into different directions. But lurking behind us always was the ghost of Michael Malloy crying out from his pauper's grave, but uh, we just always were haunted by the story. We, we, we loved it, and a couple of years ago, as the podcast world became clearly a very viable one to get into, uh, I started my own podcast, Movies Till Dawn. Plug. Movies Till Dawn can be found at moviestilldawnpodcast.com and on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Anyway, I started Movie Still Dawn, which is a, a conversational program I have with other filmmakers, all legends, all amazing guys, and I loved the doing of it. I loved getting in front of a microphone. I loved not having to get a whole crew behind you to do something interesting, and I loved the sonic world of it all. And so David and I were talking about what could we do in the podcast space that could appeal to people who are not necessarily interested in films in an informational way, but are interested in the dramatic content. And there's nothing but unproduced screenplays out there, and there's a lot of them that are really, really good. Among which we decided, one of which was Murdering Michael Malloy. Uh, and thus was born the program you're listening to, Screenplay Resurrection. Raymond, when you're writing for film, let's talk about like that kind of audio landscape that Corey and Rob had to work with, putting the Foley and the mix together, because that, I feel, is something that's really interesting when you take and you read a screenplay and you see what the layout is of the set, but how that is communicated through a pair of headphones is very different than how it's visually communicated. Yeah, and, and part of the process here was, once again, the script had to undergo a rewrite, in this case specifically because we needed to adapt it to more of a, a sonic landscape. So we went through the script and we said, we have to cut out too much description. We have to tighten the scenes so that what people say feels like it's only moving the plot forward. Well, that should be that way anyway. Um, but uh, we, we also needed to make it clear as to where you are all the time. It's hard to do without images. And one thing I did was I listened to some old radio shows from the 1940s, Suspense Theater, The Whistler, Escape. And these are dramatic shows. Now, what's kind of amazing about them is they're done live. 
But uh, not only are they really quite thrilling and they're terrific and tight scripts, but they have this world of sound. You know, when you hear those shows on radio classics, all of that Foley, all of those sound effects, all of that music was done live in one take. I find that kind of remarkable given that we hear a pass of Foley and we make notes and it changes and we come back and we add music cues. Well, it's proof of my theory that technology has slowed everything almost to a, a grinding halt. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I read recently that, um, that the Empire State Building took one year to build, one year. I mean, I try redoing, try doing a reno on a one-bedroom apartment in a year. You know, it just doesn't happen anymore. These guys were throwing together these excellent half-hour, sometimes one-hour radio dramas with full sound, full music, and they did them every week. What we do have the advantage of now, though, is having the ability to slow things down and create with more meticulous precision than they necessarily were able to do then. One of the challenges in going forward for Screenplay Resurrection is finding scripts that are strong and not necessarily so reliant on visuals that you're going to be listening to this going, all right, well, here's the narrator again describing how this is exploding in the background and how this part of the earth is floating into the, the ether and et cetera. But, you know, it's certainly doable. Some of my favorite movies have almost no action in them at all. But good talking, good storytelling. With that, feel free to join us on hangoverloungepodcast.com for Screenplay Resurrection, thrillers and crime movies that you haven't heard of because they haven't been made yet where each season we present a full-tilt radio-style podcast of a feature-length screenplay with a final commentary episode. That's what you're hearing today from the people involved in the film's non-making, myself and Raymond DeFolita. We'll listen to the stories, bleak and hopeful. I hope we left you with a little bit of hope on ScreenplayResurrection.com or HangoverLoungePodcast.com. You can find a button to request the actual screenplay of Murdering Michael Malloy. And if you have a great screenplay or a story to tell about how it didn't go and you didn't get to make your film just yet, you can submit your own screenplay to us in the very near future. And we will select semifinalists that our subscribers will vote on to decide what they would like to hear as our season two podcast. Our semifinalists also can be heard on a program called Cinephone that we're developing, which is essentially 15-minute elevator pitches of entire feature-length films with narration, dialogue, sound effects, and music. Follow us on Instagram at Screenplay Resurrection or Twitter at Hangover Lounger. And we thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us again and check back here so that we can join up in Hangover Lounge. Raymond? I'd like to take us back just one more time to West 4th Street and the village in 1997. And, you know, it didn't occur to me until we were just having this discussion that, in some ways, you were Marino and I was Malloy. You were the, you were the bartender, and, and, and you wanted something from me, and I was the sot who was accepting the free drinks. And, and somehow promising you, luring you into the relationship, only you didn't kill me. The project has nearly killed both of us. <laughs> With that, <laughs> let's go back to my favorite sound effect. So long. Okay, um, let's talk by phone in five minutes. I want to do just do another I, abbreviated I, version of what this. What do I do to... Oh, we're, gonna, we're not going to do this again. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>